Hello, Legends. Before we get into the episode, I just want to quickly tell you about a brand new show that I have just released. It's called Crime at Bedtime. And as the name suggests, it's been designed with those in mind who like to go to sleep at night listening to a fascinating true crime story. We'll release a brand new episode every single Monday, but right now there is a stack of episodes for you to binge straight away. So go check it out. It's called Crime at Bedtime. It's available wherever you get your podcasts from. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, and welcome back to One Minute Remaining. My name is Jack Lawrence, the host and creator of this show. If you're listening to this episode as it drops, it is Boxing Day 2023. I hope you had a fantastic Christmas, whatever you got up to, and you're in a food coma and just lying there ready to listen to some great content, because that's what I got for you today. Uh, Now, it's not a usual Tuesday, because of course, on Tuesdays, we drop uh, new episodes of OMR, and uh, next Tuesday, we are going to do that. It's going to be a start of a brand new story for a brand new year. Uh, the story of Stephen Lawrence, who's been incarcerated for over 30 years for the murder of his father. It's a crime that he has always maintained he's innocent of. It's a fascinating story, which we are going to kickstart next week for your new year. So today, what I wanted to do with a little bit of a late Christmas gift for you is release a bonus episode as part of our subscription service. If you're a Patreon or an Apple subscriber, each month you'll get a bonus episode. And this is one of those episodes. It's a fascinating chat with a lady who was a um, a prison officer for many years, but also uh, the governor of one of the most notorious prisons in the United Kingdom. I hope you enjoy it. Hello, Vanessa. Good morning, Jack, or good evening, or good night, whatever yeah, it is. Yes, well, I mean, it's definitely evening. I'm partaking in an amber ale, so <laughs> let's hope it's not morning time. Vanessa Frake was the Governor of Security and Operations for HMP Wormwood Scrubs in the United Kingdom. Having worked for 16 years in a high-security women's prison, dealing with the likes of Rosemary West and Myra Hindley, Vanessa Frank thought she'd seen it all. That was until she was transferred to the notorious Wormwood Scrubs. Chucked into a man's world, her no-nonsense approach and fearless attitude saw her swiftly rise through the ranks. From dealing with celebrity criminals and busting drug rings to recruiting informants and being subject to violent attacks. Vanessa Frank has detailed the madness and horror of daily life with the UK's most ruthless criminals in her memoir, The Governor. My Life Inside Britain's Most Notorious Prisons. It is a book that has come with high acclaim, 
With over 5,000 reviews on Amazon and the Sunday Times top 10 bestseller, this book is one you need to get your hands on. And I couldn't wait to sit down and have a one-on-one chat with the lady herself. First of all, uh, Vanessa, thank you so much for joining me. I am fascinated by your story. Uh, as I've said to you off air, you know, I speak to the inmates. I've spoken to uh, prison officers. We'll talk obviously about your extensive career, but you've worked your way all the way to the very top. But from, you know, I don't want to say humble beginnings, but from milking cows to seeing a poster on a wall in a tube station, all of a sudden you get end up in corrections. Like it's it's quite the jump. Yeah, I think so. But, you know, at the at the time I was I was a bit lost. You know, I think it's very, very difficult for young people, um, particularly these days to, you know, suddenly decide at, at 18 what they want to do for the rest of their life. Yeah. And um, as it as it was, you know, the the bottom sort of fell out of milking cows. The, the there wasn't sort of any place to go. I was never going to make enough money to have my own farm or or anything like that. And you know, I, I looked looked at something that I wanted as a career. And um, you know, it just so happened that I saw the poster about the prison service on the on the tube. Um, and at the same time that I applied for the prison service, I also applied for the Met Police. And um, when I was halfway through my training for the prison service, I was up at the training school in uh, Rugby, which is up in Warwickshire. Um, I got a letter from Hendon Police College saying, you know, come and join us on this date. And uh, by that time, I was kind of halfway through and I thought, well, I'll just see where, where this goes. And the rest, they say, is history. So yep. yeah, absolutely. that's how it kind of started. At the um, the terror of your mother when you told her that you were planning on going into corrections, because it would be because, you know, not only is this is sort of we're talking, what, mid-80s uh, when, you, when you decided on this, mm-hmm. you know, so no doubt a heavily male-dominated, and we'll talk about that because I have some interesting stories, from, from especially from training, but a very male-dominated, really, uh, industry. And not only that, you're going into prisons with dangerous people, you know? So, obviously, mum was very concerned. Yeah, my mum was. And, um, you know, even now, I mean, she's 80-odd now, and uh, she'll say, oh, I'm so pleased that you're out of that job now. <laughs> you know, so, um, <laughs> so in one respect, she's very proud of me. You know, I've got an MBE, I've written a book, blah, 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 I do things like this. But on the other hand, she's like, you know, oh, thank God she's out of that environment, you know, mixing with all of those people. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I've never, I've never wanted to conform. I've always been incredibly independent, you know, and I'll do what I want to do, what I think is best for me. And, um, you know, that's that's been sort of the story right through my life. You know, obviously most people think of prisons and you do think danger, you think, you know, criminals, you think violence, um, not generally a place most people would think about wanting to go. Did you have any, did, I know, you, you know, you look at this poster and you think, oh, that might be a good career. Was there any part of you that went, oh, this could be a bit dangerous, you know? No, not at all. Um, I, I looked at it as if, uh, from the point of view, it's it, at the bottom of the poster, it said you two could make a difference. And I thought, well, yeah, maybe if I can make a difference to somebody's life, that you know that that would be a good thing. I didn't think about the danger. I think if you dwell too much on things like that, then you wouldn't do the job, and that that job is not for you. You know, I could easily walk out my house this morning and get run over by a bus. So you know, there's like I said, you know, there's good times and there's bad times, and um, you've got to learn to deal with it and uh, the best way that that is best for you. 
Um, no, I never, I never thought I was never, somebody once asked me, um, were you ever scared, you know, going into, into work? And I said, absolutely not. I said, because the first time that I was ever scared would have been the first time yeah, that I turned around and go. walked off. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, no. So you go into training and do you think they equipped you for what you were, what you were going to face in your career in that training? Absolutely not. <laughs> no. Um, they, you know, let's be blunt about yeah, this. Absolutely. You know, they tell you, you know, they try and give you sort of scenarios of somebody shouting at you in your face and how you deal with it. And they try and sort of teach you into personal skills. But I'm a firm believer you've either got into personal skills or you haven't. It's very difficult to learn that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and um, that's why some people are good prison officers and some people are bad prison officers, in my humble opinion. But, um, no, I mean, I think, you know, they didn't teach me about death. They didn't teach me about severe self-harm. And I don't mean just like a, a few little flicks on your wrist. I mean, like, you know, trying to pull your eyeballs out, um, slicing slicing your, your leg wide open so you can get to the vein and rip the vein out, biting chunks out of your wrist down to the bone and spitting lumps of flesh out. Jesus. You know, I'm talking seriously disturbed people. And also, and talking of disturbed, you know, there's a lot of people in jail that shouldn't be in jail, those that have got mental health issues. And you get absolutely no training with how to deal those people with with that that those people that have those issues. And it's and and it's um it's a it's a learning curve, but it's a very quick learning curve. Before we get out of the training, uh, you know, you speak of uh, the right training back in the eighties, or the uh, the where the the men were sort of. It was the men's job, really, and, and oh. the ladies sort of sat sat at the side and, and got the option to throw rubber bricks at the boys. I mean, again, not preparing right. not preparing you for violence, really, is it? Apart from unless you want to be the aggressor. Well, and hardly the aggressor throwing a few <laughs> rubber, bricks, rubber bricks, yeah. you know, at, at, at guys in full riot gear. You know, it was it was um, you know didn't prepare you at all when when I joined the prison service in '86. Women were worked at women's jails and men worked at men's jails. And um, our uniform was like a, an A-line skirt that sort of stuck out like at arm's length. And uh, so you had tights on, skirt, shirt, and, uh, you know, rolling around with somebody who's, who's fighting you on the floor with no real clue as to what you're doing, how, how to put people in holds, how to protect yourself, nothing was given to us like that. And bearing in mind, I went to Holloway when I started and Holloway was at that time the largest female jail in Western Europe. You know, it held some of the most violent prisoners um, and, um, you know, nobody taught us how to deal with that. And thankfully, you know, somebody, you know, they used to give um, the men staves, which is like a, a policeman's truncheon, wooden thing about so long. But they gave us cubitons, which was literally about that big. Um, and it was supposed to, you were supposed to be able to bend somebody's finger back with it to give them a bit of pain to to stop them doing it. Absolutely. Well, you might as well give me a chocolate fire guard. Absolutely <laughs> useless. Um, but um, you know, <laughs> these these were all things that that happened then. And finally somebody sort of turned around and said, okay, well, we we see that you know, women need to do riot training. I mean, I went to, to riots. I went to riot at Bullwood Hall, Cookham Wood, um, female riots. And I let me tell you, women can be equally, if not worse than men, um, you know, in that sort of situation. 
um, and uh, had absolutely no idea what, what you were doing at that time. So let's talk about Holloway because that was the first prison that you went to. I know you initially go there to do some training and then you leave and come back to start work. So let's just go straight to work. Like your first day on the job, like it's you're, you're in there and ready to go. Do you remember that day walking through there for the very first day of your, your first day on the job? Uh, yeah, when I came back from the training school, there was nine of us all lined in a row in uh, waiting in the gate. Um, and uh, we rocked up to the gate and there was some miserable <laughs> senior officer on the gate saying, right, you lot, wait over there, you know. And uh, then they phoned the training department. Somebody came and came and got us. We stuck out like sore thumbs. You do when you're new. Your uniform looks new. It was pristine condition, you know. I thought I wasn't scared, a bit of trepidation maybe, a bit of few butterflies in the stomach. But I, I was really looking forward to getting stuck in. You know, this is what I'd trained to do. This is what I'd, um, I'd wanted to do. And um, and so I was I was ready for the off. So Vanessa starts her career at HM Prison Holloway. First opening its doors in 1852, It started life out as a mixed-sex prison, but in 1903 would become female only. Most notably, holding the Suffragettes, a women's activist organisation in the early 20th century fighting for women's rights to vote. They would break the law in pursuit of their aims, and many were imprisoned in Holloway and were treated as political prisoners. In protest, many women went on hunger strike and would be force-fed by the authorities. Holloway was also home to female members of the IRA, as well as some of Britain's most notorious female criminals, like serial killer Myra Hinley and convicted murderer Dina Thompson, commonly known as the Black Widow. Holloway Prison would close in 2016 and be sold by the government as the site for new housing. Old Victorian prisons in our cities that are not suitable for rehabilitating prisoners will be sold. Today, the transformation gets underway with the announcement that the Justice Secretary has just made. I can tell the House that Holloway Prison, the biggest women's jail in Western Europe, will close. The one thing I think you hear most about when it comes to prisoners and prison guards is... You know, instantly these prisoners are testing you. They want to see what you're made of and whether you're a pushover and that sort of stuff. How how did you sort of get in there and not mark your territory, but say, I'm not here to be messed around with? You know, it doesn't matter whether you're new to a jail, new to the job, new to a rank. You know, prisoners will test you. They'll see how far they can push you. So the first thing that I did was learn the word no. <laughs> um, because once you say no, there's nowhere to go with that. If you say a maybe, well, maybe. If you say yes, well, you know, the minute you say no after saying yes, you know, you've got confrontation. So I just learned to say no. And, uh, you know, I made sure that prisoners had everything that they were entitled to. I made sure that I never lied to a prisoner. And if I didn't know something, I'd say, well, you know, I'll go and find out. Um And I think that that's important to, if you if you speak to like any of any my staff that I used to work with or even ex-prisoners who who know me, they'll always say she was firm but fair. And that's that's how I kept all through my career. I do hear that a lot with the inmates that I talk to. Some of their, you know, the, their favourite you know, guards are ones who, and they say that, you know, she's great, but don't mess with her sort of thing. But prisoners, prisoners know where they stand. 
you know, there's no gray areas. It's it's clear which side of the fence you are and you're not moving from there. And that's what they like. And prisoners like routine. They like to know if they ask a question that it's going to be answered. They like to know if they're entitled to, I know, a letter a week, that they're going to get a letter a week. You know, that's what prisoners like. Because when you're in that sort of enclosed um, place like a jail, routine is is paramount. Routine is what gets you through it. And that's, that's the same for prisoners and staff. Um, you know, I know I'm institutionalised. I, I still get on a bus and count how many people are on the top deck with me. You know, that that will I have lunch at 12 o'clock, let me tell you. You know, that that is my life. That's yeah. what I've I've done for years and years and years. And, um, you know, I, I dare say that there's prisoners who are now out who still wait at the door waiting for somebody to open it. And yeah. and, and that is the, the long and the short of jail. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of routine for everyone involved in, in, yeah. in the prison service. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You already briefly sort of touched on the self-harm and that sort of stuff. Because, look, you know, this is the, the sad part of prison. You know, I talked to a, a number of inmates who talk about cellmates who have committed suicide next to them. I mean, mm -hmm. actually, one of the guys I talked to on a regular basis emailed me yesterday to say, that, yeah, a guy next door to him in his cell sadly committed suicide overnight. You talk about this horrendous self-harm, not just, you know, as you said, slight cuts on the arms, but really graphic stuff. It's traumatic. Yeah. It's a lot to deal with. You know, you look at, uh, you know, people in the any services, you know, fireies, police officers, yeah. all deal with this trauma. And back in the day when, you know, you started, there was no such thing as mental health and HR and all the rest of it. It was a case of you get on with it. Do you remember the first case where you were really like, 
wow, this is serious stuff that we're dealing with here. The first time um, I was on nights, actually, when a lot of self-harm sort of happens, um, unfortunately. And uh, we had a lifer who'd murdered her boyfriend and um, she'd attempted to murder the... um, his his new girlfriend uh, it was her ex-boyfriend um and uh, she was serving uh, a life sentence and uh, we got a call um one night when i was on nights that uh, could they have some staff because uh this prisoner had, had uh, cut up slashed her slashed her wrists not in a not in a dangerous way but enough that there was a, a lot of blood around and um I'm I'm the first to hold my hand up. I'm not particularly good around around blood, um, particularly you know my own. But um, myself and another officer went to the wing that she was on, and we opened the cell. Um, the nursing staff were like downstairs, and uh, so we took her out of the cell. Said, "Come on, let's go and get you stitched up." Went downstairs, and um, she'd had uh, like a towel over her wrist, and uh, she took she took this. <laughs> this towel off and like this claret just started sort of like gushing out. And um, I was like, Oh God. And the nurse like got a chair out and this, this prisoner went to sit down to her and oh, I was not for you. It's from his throat. Here. She doesn't like the sight of blood. That was the first time. And I don't mean disrespect no, to that of course not. Or, or anything, but sometimes, you know, it's, the, it's the old hangman's humor with, um, you know, nurses, police, fire Totally, brigade, my brother's an ex-copper and he's got the darkest sense of humour because you just, that's how they got through it. It was that and drinking. Totally, totally agree with that. You know, and that, and I think, you know, I lived in prison quarters because at that time, when you joined the job in London, you got a quarter because property was so expensive and your wages were so shit. But um, so that you got into this little triangle where you got work at the top, then you got like the prison club on the piss and then you got like your quarter. So you sort of just went round in this little triangle from one to the other. And I think over the years, you know, all the things you see that a lot of people don't see in a lifetime, you sort of compartmentalize and you put them away. And and somebody say to you, You're all right, Jack. And Jack will go, Yeah, yeah, no problem. I'm sorted. Because that's what you were expected to say. Yeah, just get on and with people it. didn't really want you to sit, turn around and say, Well, actually, no, I'm not all right. Um, you know, and um, so at that time, there was no, you know, aftercare for staff. There was no occupational therapy, no counselling, anything like that. You were just expected to to get on with it and move on to the next things. And, um, you know, that's a, that's a real shame. And I think not just me, but, you know, since I, I published the book, a lot of people um, have got in contact with me and said, you know, that was the same for me. And now I'm dealing with it. I think when I wrote the book, it was quite cathartic yeah, because a lot of things that I'd put away for for another day started to come out. Um, and, um, you know, having to deal with it so many years later is actually quite difficult. Whereas, like, dealing with it, I'm, I know that, you know, the, the whole sort of occupational therapy counselling is much more prevalent today, but it still could be better. Yeah. I think that's for all, all services still, you know. Absolutely, everybody yeah. could could always do better because they're tough jobs. They really are. You see, you yeah, see, you are. really see the worst of the worst. Yeah, and you see things on a daily basis most people don't see in a lifetime. Yeah, uh, thank God. 
like I said, you know, nobody really prepares you for that. Your time as a as a prison guard, a prison officer, you know, you you said that you really faced it all, slapping black eyes, potted. Oh, potting is a de- absolute delight. Um, that was it when I was at Wilmot Scrubs. I was a, a principal officer then, and uh, I'd put a prisoner on basic. Now, there's three there's three levels of sort of behaviour monitored. So there's enhanced, there's uh, standard, and there's basic. And I mean, it is what it is. It says, you know, basic is for the naughty boys, those that don't conform, those that cause issues, those that, you know, are rude to staff or um, assault staff or, you know, get caught with mobiles or drugs or whatever. Enhanced is those that conform to the regime. They're, and I use inverted commas, trusted prisoners. They've got good jobs. They don't cause any issues. They address their offending behaviour, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and um, I put this prisoner on basic. Um, he didn't like it. He went to his cell and kicked off. And uh, he weren't happy anyways. Basic basically meant that his whole regime was curtailed. So he had no TV. He had no, His privileges were reduced. He wasn't allowed out when everybody else was to a degree. Um, and, um, and it's reviewed like weekly. And... Um, he just had his review and I told him that he was staying on basic because his behaviour still didn't warrant him coming off. Anyways, he, he went off in a strop, went to his cell and that was it. Um, and then uh, the next day I got a sort of a, a very cryptic, one of the prisoners, I was chatting to this this prisoner um, who was um, there, but for the grace of God, go many of us. He was um, out one Friday night with his mate had a few too many drinks, got embroiled in a fight with um, another guy, punched the guy, guy fell over, hit his head, died. Um, and uh, he got um, a manslaughter, 12, 15 year sentence. So I, I did a lot of work with his family and because um, he had issues with his family with him and um, we had a, a good working relationship. And he came to me one morning and he said, Gov, you just got to be careful. And I said, what do you mean careful? And he said, I can't really say any more than that, Gov, just... Just watch your back. And so, yeah, no oh, problem. God, that's an ominous thing thanks to hear. The, Jesus. Yeah, thanks for the heads up. <laughs> but look, you know, people say, oh, well, why didn't you risk assess it? Why didn't you do something? Else? You know, somebody told me they'd have me shot outside Wormwood Scrubs once. You know, you can't you can't take every threat yeah, as if course. it's, you know, your last day on, on earth. You know, you've got to you've got to be able to deal with it. Um, and um, that evening I stayed on to do some paperwork. And uh, about seven o'clock, there was an alarm bell, uh, which rings audibly on the wing. And I was on the, the it was four, four floors, the D-wing, and um, the alarm bell was on the fourth floor. So I came out of the office, ran up the landing, bearing in mind each side is a typical prison. Each side, there's uh, rows of cells going up four floors. And as I came down the, the corridor, I felt just this sort of wetness just come all over me. And uh, basically being potted is uh, prisoner um, shits, pisses in a bottle, shakes it up, keeps it for a couple of days and then throws it at you. Um, and it's done to humiliate you, to, you know, um, cause you stress. Could also make you very sick that. as well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, 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 it's not a pleasant thing. Mm. So, like, I mean, one minute I was fine, the next minute I was just dripping in the stuff. And, um, you know, other staff came to the wing because the alarm bell was still going off. And uh, 
anyways, I found out um, the duty governor came, took me away, gave me some fresh uniform, went and showered, and uh, and I went straight back to the wing uh, because it's a bit like you know when you fall off a horse, get straight back on. Sometimes you just yeah. got to face it and face your fears and everything. And so I went straight back to the wing. I knew exactly who'd done it. It was the guy that I'd put on basic and uh, went straight up, got some staff with me, opened his door and said, right, you're off to the segregation unit. And we took him down the seg. Um, he got, um, I don't know, 14 days down the seg. And then he winged his way very north um, in the country, north. That was that, you know. <laughs> Wormwood Scrubs opened in 1875 and is likely the first prison in Europe that could be classified as a supermax. It's a Category B men's prison located in West London, and it has to house some of Britain's most infamous and dangerous prisoners, including the likes of Charles Bronson. Initially sentenced to seven years for armed robbery, that sentence would be extended after his many antics inside the prison like rooftop protests and attacks on staff. He would then receive a life sentence for taking a staff member hostage for two days. I'm 70 years old now, Martin. 70 years old. I've never murdered anyone. I've never raped anyone. What am I in jail for? People don't believe it. They think I'm a serial killer. In 1999, Bronson took a prison teacher hostage for two days. He got a life sentence, but was eligible for parole three years later. Also housing the UK's most notorious gangsters and heads of the organisation known simply as The Firm, Ronnie and Reggie Cray. They were linked to a number of armed robberies, protection rackets, assaults and murders. After their mother's home was raided, authorities would discover links to the American Mafia as well as other crimes and they received life sentences with a non-parole period of 30 years. How much does this trial cost you? It's cost us roughly £8,000. And how do you feel about that? I don't suppose anyone likes it. I did spend that money for no reason. So, you know, it's a lot of money to have to pay it when money's innocent, you know. What are you going to do now that it's all over? I like to have a bit of family life now, you know. I intend to get married in the near future. Ronald, what are you going to do now? Well, I'd like to go abroad for a short while and uh, then I'd like to be left alone. What was that like going from a female prison to, um, you know, for, for those who don't know, I mean, Wormwood Scrubs is quite a, you know, is a well-known prison in the United Kingdom. I think everyone's heard of it. It's quite notorious. What, what was it like going from, from women's prison to a men's prison? A lot of people ask me that question and they're quite surprised by the answer, but it was an actual Easier. breath of fresh yeah. air. <laughs> Working with women is, um, is quite draining, quite difficult. Um, you know, a lot of women are in jail for petty crimes, you know, drug-related, and they're very emotional. Also, women are usually like prim primary carers, mothers, you know. And um, so dealing with them and all the sort of social sides is actually quite draining. Women in jail worry about what their partner's doing, where their kids are, who's, who's cooking dinner that night. The partner is not going with somebody else. Men in jail are quite different. They're um, quite self-centred, so they're not so worried about what's going on outside. They're more worried about them inside. So it's like, well, who's sending me money? Who's bringing me new trainers in? You yeah, know, yeah. all that sort of thing. What I did at Holloway, there was a saying when I worked at Holloway that 
you can work at Holloway, you can work anywhere. The responsibility that I had at Holloway far exceeded the responsibility I had at Wormwood Scrub. So when I was at Holloway, like the senior officer was like next to God. When I was at Wormwood Scrubs, it was the principal officer, the next one up, who was next to God. And nothing happened without the, the principal officer's say-so. When I was at Holloway, so we may have had 60, 70 prisoners on one wing on uh, what's called an ACT document, which is uh, a suicide watch for any other sort of description. When I was at Wilman Scrubs, it might have been five or six on the wing. So it's a big, big difference. So it was much more personal responsibility. And, of course, you know, women are by nature much more emotional than men. So, you know, I've seen a fight in a dining room over the size of somebody's Christmas pudding, you know, with women because they they react just like that. Whereas men, you can usually feel it coming. Yeah. They're not quite as um, reactive as, as women are. I found most of the prisoners very respectful. You're always going to get, you know, one or two that think that they can, they can say things that um, are going to hurt you. I mean, come up with one that I unearthed, you know what I mean? It's like water yeah. off the duck's back to me. Yeah. But um, women, you know, it's the bite in the hair, pulling all this sort of thing when you're fighting with them. Men, it's it's a punch or a slap or, or something like that. It's a totally different environment in a male jail. And I actually enjoyed it. I wish that I'd gone to a male jail much sooner. Let's talk notorious criminals that come to prison and generally when we talk about notorious criminals that come to prison those are the criminals that have garnered a lot of attention in the media uh there's a former notorious criminal called mark chopper reed from australia uh famous quote from him is once you end up in prison you're just another bare bum in the shower which is very true That's right. <laughs> but right. what, what i would like to know is how much of a pain in the ass is it for a prison when one of these i say in air quotes notorious prisoners or high-profile prisoners comes in because, you know, you get people like, um, I think, Tommy Robinson, people might know, but a notorious right-wing guy from the UK. I saw a show recently, he went uh, into Belmarsh. So he went into Belmarsh and it was just like, an utter nightmare because obviously he's a high profile person likely to get beaten up. You've got that woman who's just been convicted uh, in the UK for those horrendous let be. be. How, how much of a nightmare is that for a prison when someone like that turns up? Uh, It is quite, quite difficult because number one, you want to keep them safe. And number two, you want to keep everybody else safe. People like, I mean, we had Rose West. Rosemary Pauline West, who collaborated with her husband Fred West in the torture and murder of at least nine young women between 1973 and 1987. She would also murder her eight-year-old stepdaughter in 1971. Rosemary West, on trial at Winchester, accused of ten murders, today became the first witness called in her own defence. Rosemary West made her all-too-familiar journey to court again this morning, but today, for the first time, She was to speak directly to the jury. She was convicted of 10 murders in 1995 and remains in prison today, aged 69. Her husband, Fred West, would commit suicide in prison while awaiting trial. And Vanessa was, in fact, in attendance when she would be given the news of the death of Fred and says she showed absolutely no emotion 
and gave no reaction to the news at all. Good evening. Rosemary West is tonight starting a prison sentence that will almost certainly last for the rest of her life. The jury at Winchester Crown Court found her guilty on seven more counts of murder today to add to the three guilty verdicts yesterday. Uh, she's an all-life sentence prisoner, but, you know, the press and the hype around her case was such that that sort of publicity almost makes a prisoner think that they are something special. Yeah. When actually they're not, because to to me, who has to work with them, to to other staff, you know, they like your your chap said, you know, they're they're another bum in the shower. Um, they've got a number the same as everybody else, but um, it is difficult and. You know, quite often the likes of high-profile prisoners are segregated initially um, from the rest of the wing, like Rose West does, Let Be, Will Be. Not sure about Tommy Robinson. I would imagine they'll be very difficult where to put him. Yeah. Because there's a high <laughs> number of foreign national prisoners at, at Belmarsh, so they want to, I mean, his he'll have a target on his back without doubt, as will many others like Letby, you know, she'll be looking over her shoulder for the rest of her, her, her time in jail. So it is it is difficult and you certainly don't want anything to happen to them when it's on your watch, let me tell you. Well, yeah, because it makes national news and then it's all of a sudden there's oh, inquiries. Yes, and yeah. ha- Well, we had a we had something happen here. There's a, a criminal over here. His name, was, his name was Carl Williams, very big in the underworld, drug dealer. He went to prison and somehow in, uh, in the prison... Uh, gymnasium, someone got to him, you know, a, a weight across his head, killed him. And it, obviously it's national news, you know, because he was yeah. supposed to be in a protection wing and it's, the questions are asked, how does this happen? Oh, absolutely. The trial of a man accused of murdering gangland boss Carl Williams continues. Matthew Charles Johnson told Victoria's Supreme Court he has no regrets about killing Carl Williams in April 2010. Johnson beat Williams to death in one of the most secure jail units in Victoria. Victoria's Supreme Court released these images of the crime scene, giving the outside world a rare glimpse into Barwon Prison's high-security compound. Revealed is the body of gangland boss Carl Williams near his cell, after he was bashed to death by Matthew Charles Johnson, one of the two men he shared the unit with. A Melbourne jury was today shown graphic security footage of the fatal bashing of gangland boss Carl Williams in Barwon Prison last year. Williams' former cellmate, Matthew Johnson, is standing trial for his murder. The poor staff who who have to deal with that, I mean, I can assure you it's an awful lot of paperwork when something like that happens yeah. and you know your your ability to to run a jail to work in a jail is questioned and you know staff can't be everywhere at the same time you know when you at scrubs we had our biggest wing was um about 400 prisoners and out of that we had six staff and an so to run that so you can't be everywhere at the same time. You cannot physically be able to watch every single prisoner 24-7. It's just an impossibility. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, people don't realise that. And then, you know, prisons are an anomaly because they're always, I mean, I don't know what it's like in Australia, but certainly here, 
the only news you ever hear about prisons is bad news. Oh, absolutely. You never hear anything good. You you hear about the number of suicides, but you never hear about the number of prisoners that have been cut down, that that lives have been saved by staff or things like that. It makes better news to be bad news than it does, you know, to prisoners saying, oh, look at our rehabilitation rates. You know, they're through the roof and we've done this. That doesn't get as many that. clicks on the old then internet. Yeah, and then you'll get people say, well, prison's too soft because, you know, you give them all this, but your rehabilitation rates are really good, which saves you and me a load of money, you know. You can never win with a jail. One thing we have to talk about, and I know you get asked about this a lot, but uh, it's to do with obviously contraband and things that get snuck into the prison. The men and women that I speak with have told me extensively about this. Drugs for them are very easy to get their hands on. I talk to inmates with their own mobile phones. They're on Facebook, WhatsApp. And a lot of them say that uh, the prison officers themselves are the ones that bring it in for them. Obviously, this is in the United States, but I would imagine this goes on everywhere around the world, including the UK. Absolutely. You know, I mean... The thing with with any type of contraband is is once you shut one door, another one will open. So we had an issue with parcels coming over the wall. Yeah, literally because Scrubs is in in the city, um, passers by were just lobbing Lob parcels in, yeah. over, and and the guys that were out in the grounds, trusted prisoners, picking them up, taking them to the dealers, distributing them amongst the wings. And we were getting, we were finding maybe 20, 30 parcels a day. And that's what we were finding. Wow. So God knows how many we were actually missing. Um, and so I I had this idea to net the jail, put a net right the way around the jail. And I put a bid together um, and it was accepted, got some money, got uh, found a company. Well, actually, I'll tell a lie, my deputy. I went into my deputy's office and said, I've, right, I've had this idea, we're going to net the jail. And he looked at me as if I'd like completely lost, lost your it. mind. <laughs> yeah. You're going to put a big net your over this place. To- <laughs> Go find yeah. one. Your task today is to find me a company that can do that. And love him, Mick. I'll give him a shout out there. He, um, he found this bird netting company. And they came in, had a look round, said, yeah, it was going to cost 70 grand. And this was back in about 2011, 20, about 2010, 2011. Um, anyways, we won the short, long story short, we won the bid. We got them in. They did it. And after that, you know, our our mandatory drug testing rate, which is where prisoners are tested um, to, to try and work out what, what the amount of drugs are in a, in a jail, obviously the lower your percentage, the less drugs you put yep. in. It went from something like 30-odd percent down to about 4%. Wow. So that's how much of an impact it had. But once we'd had that net input up, of course, the pressure then was on the staff, was on the court staff to bring it in, yeah. was on um, solicitors to bring it in, was on to visitors to bring it in, was on to uh, – we even had um, uh, the police being complicit – to it coming in you know so um this is what i'm saying you know it's it's very easy for people out outside of jail to say gosh you can't believe you know they get hold of a mobile phone but the problem with prisons is is investment that there's not enough money to tackle the the in the absolute flow of technology that comes into all around contraband like now 
jails have got problems with drones. Yeah, drones flying over. Yeah, yeah, drones flying over and bringing them in. But um, you know, this this is this is something that was a constant battle, completely constant battle. Um, yeah, well, I mean, we we had uh, we caught one member of staff bringing um, bringing drugs in, and she got seven years wow. in jail. Um, you know, so you know. You can do so much, but at the end of the day, you know, they've got to be lucky every time they walk in with stuff. You've only got to be lucky once. And speaking of this scenario, I know you've mentioned this show before in a previous interview as one that's the closest that you've seen to the actual job itself. It's the TV drama series Time. Um, yeah. Where the phenomenal TV show where, you know, you've got a prison guard whose son is basically threatened and he hasn't, he, in his mind, he has no other choice but to do what they want. I mean, the only, the only thing I will say about that is, yeah, he was threatened, but he went, he did what he was supposed to. He yeah, went to the governor him. and said, she did bugger all, basically <laughs> said, well, that's tough. You know, that wouldn't happen in yeah. real life. Yeah. I mean, I would have done so much more there and helped him, but, um, he would never have been in real life, you know, that governor should have been bloody sacked. I can imagine opinion. you sitting there going, all. that would not happen in my prison. <laughs> no, it would not, I can assure you. So I mean I, I understand, you know, TV shows they've got yeah, to they drive it, yeah, of course, yeah. You know, otherwise trust me, it would be boring as boring as anything. Yeah. You know, one of my favorite jail uh, programs is Wentworth. Oh, oh, I love isn't Wentworth. it great? I love I love it too. So much drama. It's insane. Oh, honestly, can you imagine <laughs> working in that environment and having that much drama and murder and you're nothing I hope you're nothing like the governor in Wentworth. No, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I do want to ask you about, because obviously I speak to a lot of inmates who say they're innocent of innocent of the crimes they were committed of. And you know, there there is a big this big joke around it's like there's no guilty people in prison. Did you ever come across anyone in your time, you know, working corrections that you that said they were innocent and you believe them? Um I had plenty that came across and said they were innocent. Yeah. Um <clears throat> Listen, my mine is not to judge. That yeah. wasn't my job. Wasn't my job. So, you know, I I used to take it on face value. If if I had a a, a pound or an Australian dollar for every time somebody told me that they were innocent, you know, I'd be a multi billionaire probably. Yeah. But um, whether they were innocent or not was immaterial to me. You know, they were there and I was there to look after them. Um, so I really, you know, I think. You have to draw a line as to how involved you get with with prisoners because yeah, um, that can be a very sticky sticky path. And let's let's finish it on a, a hell of a question, which is you know probably a podcast in itself. Does prison work? Oh, I love that question because <laughs> um, I have strong opinions on this one. Uh, yeah, I think well, that's the thing. You see. Prison, prison does um, invoke strong opinions from every part of society. Personally speaking, in, in this country, no, prison doesn't work. We lock up, uh, in, in the UK, we lock up uh, the most prisoners in Western Europe. We have the worst reoffending rates. Yep. Um, uh, there's very little investment. We have a lot of old Victorian prisons that are no longer fit for purpose. And um, as I said, you know, don't keep up with technology. Um, are they decent and and humane? Uh, well, some of them are rat infested, you know, crumbling buildings, or, 
you know, you can just imagine it. I think there's a lot of really good staff in the in the prison estate. Um, and I've had the pleasure to work with a lot of them. We need to invest in our prisons over here. If we invested better in our offending behaviour programmes in this country, it would save us a lot of money. Yeah. Because in this country, it costs around 50 grand per prisoner place per year. We're at the at the moment we're in the news because we're full. The prisons are full. We lock locking up around eighty eight thousand. You know we've got we've got jails in this country that were built for nine hundred and thirty men that are holding sixteen hundred men. How you can run a regime um, and reduce reoffending rates with that sort of overcrowding is is beyond belief. I don't understand how how anybody thinks that that's possible. But the biggest thing in in our prisons in this country is politics, and it's it's not a vote winner to say let's spend some money on prisons, yeah. let's um, concentrate on reducing reoffending. Oh no, what's a vote winner in this country is let's lock up as many yep. prisoners as we possibly can. We'll be the part. It'll be tough on crime. on crime. Absolutely, not thinking. And and God bless Joe Public. They don't think that every prisoner who's nicked a bottle of whiskey from the supermarket, who's suddenly got a three-month sentence, loses his home, probably loses his relationship, certainly will lose his job for two minutes of madness. Why can't he work in the community and pay that bottle of whiskey back and clear up around, you know, in his area where he's offended? You know, these, these short sentences where people lose everything for... First time non-violent crimes are a complete waste of time. You can see you got me on my soapbox here. Yeah, I love it because the, the <laughs> listeners are used to hearing me on my soapbox about all this stuff. <laughs> I mean, you look at the United States, they're giving out 100-year sentences and you know, to people who, have, yeah. who haven't killed anyone and you're just like, what, what is that? How does that help anybody? Let's just throw well, it this. doesn't. It doesn't help anybody. You know, I've got a, a guy that I talked to who got a 100-year sentence. He didn't hurt anyone. He was addicted to drugs. You know, he robbed a store. He got in a car chase. No one got killed. Of course they could have done, but you can't convict people on what could have happened. It didn't happen. No. Yes, he deserved to go to prison or uh, and pay the price, but they gave him a 100-year sentence without the possibility of ever getting parole. Like, I mean, That's what ridiculous. is that? I mean, how is that helping anybody? Well, it's not, is it? Oh, it's but that proves it doesn't work because they have got the harshest sentences. You know, they've got the harshest legal system. They've got the the hardcore prisons, and they've got the highest incarceration rate in the world. You know, yeah. double the amount that China has, which is second on the list. You know, it's crazy. Now we're you both know, on think, our soapbox. Yeah, I, mean, I think you know. I just think that you know, in this country, we've had thirteen different prison ministers in the last ten years. It's been like a bleeding roundabout. You know, each each one has the idea that they've invented the wheel. They've they've all come up with something new, not. We did that five years ago. It didn't work then and it won't work now. You know, we're we're just on this our whole justice system needs needs a review and take the parties out of it. Take politics right. This out. is the problem. Politics always gets involved and ruins everything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
bloody politicians. <laughs> <laughs> and I know I said I was ending on that question, but one last question. And I know you Go get on. this a lot as well. You get all these questions a lot. But if I was going to prison tomorrow, Vanessa, I'm, I'm going to lock up tomorrow. How do I survive? As someone who's seen it all, how would I survive in, in a prison environment and come out of it okay? If it was me, first off, I'd keep my mouth shut and keep my eyes open. I wouldn't trust anybody, but who I could communicate with the best. People often ask me, what would you be like in jail? And I and I always say, you know, I'd be the best behaved prisoner going. Mm. I'd get a really good job with all the perks, like the tea girl, you know, out all the time, making tea for staff, listening at doors, seeing what's what's what, what's going on, seeing um what what ranks are in the in the prisoner. Uh, system because there is a hierarchy whichever way you look yeah. at it um you know and i think um that then i'd probably be up to all sorts but i think you know initially you'd go on to the first night center and you'd probably hopefully been be met by first night center staff who are very compassionate um and who realize that first time people uh, prisoners in in prison for the first time are often in shock. You know, it's a big shock to suddenly be incarcerated. And that is the punishment. Whatever people say, whatever people want to say about, you know, throwing them in a cell and locking away the, the key, the actual punishment is the denial of, of liberty. Of freedom, yeah. And uh, people should remember that. Well, look, I mean, I honestly could talk to you for another few hours, but I, what I am going to do tonight is I'm going to put my earbuds in and listen to The Governor, My Life Inside Britain's Most Notorious Prisons. Uh, I, I love an audio book, so thank you for making sure there was an audio version. And, uh, of course, you know, the book is available as well. Over 5,000 reviews on Amazon, which is just absolutely phenomenal. If that doesn't say that this is a, a fantastic book, there nothing will. So, uh, you know, congratulations on the success of the book uh, and you. obviously on what has been a, a very successful career. Uh, and uh, thank you so much indeed for your time. Pleasure, Jack. Thanks for inviting me and having me along. You have one minute remaining. Once again, big thank you to Vanessa for sitting down with me to chat about her career. In a very short snippet of that amazing career, as we've already stated, she dealt with some uh, very interesting prisoners, Rosemary West, Myra Hindley, uh, and many, many others. Uh, and all of this is detailed in her book, which you can get your hands on right now, The Governor, My Life Inside Britain's Most Notorious Prisons, the link to which is in the show notes of this episode. 